how are you going to do this? Uh, and then, then you can look at the resources that you have. You can make the decisions that need to be made to understand where you're going to go. Uh, but it, it's just, it's that first problem that you need to fix. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Shannon Robnett. With over 25 years of experience, Shannon has been involved from start to finish on over $350 million of construction projects. Uh, this includes multifamily professional office buildings and city halls, fire and police stations, schools, industrial projects, and mini storage. Um, I'm going to stop there, Shane. I, I, first, I want to just say thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate you taking the time out and uh, coming coming on this this Monday morning. Well, Jason, I appreciate you having me here, and uh, I hope that uh, at the end of our conversation, we're able to add value to your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have no doubt. I think uh, we've got a lot of interesting things in your background. So let's just start with that. Let's start with you telling us kind of your story, your background, you know, how, how things started for you, and then we'll we'll work through that journey. Well, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, I was being re raised by poor dad. You know, we've all read that little purple book with uh, the, the Robert Kiyosaki wrote about rich dad, poor dad. And I watched my parents do business deals at the table. And, uh, you know, I grew up in that environment where I was constantly exposed to business and it was very normal. My mother was a realtor. My father was a builder and a developer. And I just constantly saw that. And I, I didn't really grasp, you know, what I was witnessing and what I was a party to. I just thought I was being used on Saturdays and, and, you know, afternoons cleaning up job sites and, you know, I thought I was being abused. You know, I thought I thought life just wasn't fair. You know, uh, my friends got to go to the water park and I had to go put in sprinkler lines. And my dad convinced me that that was the same. We were both, you know, there with the water, you know, but it it, it obviously wasn't. But but as I got older and I started to realize the background I've been given and the and really the gift that my parents had raised me with uh, became very early uh, apparent very early in my in my life that I was I was designed to be an entrepreneur and I was encouraged by my family to do that um, and you know the reality is that uh, at the end of all of that you know I I've I've never worked for anyone in my adult life um, my brother actually has never even received a W two um, you know but the the whole thing about how that journey works is is you you have to embrace it. You've got to take the first steps and you've got to realize that there is a better option for you. You've got to figure out what that option is and you've really got to go running headlong into that option. Um, without that, you you kind of wind up on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah I, I think it, it's it, I, I really do think this will be a, a unique perspective because because honestly, I feel like in, tell me what you've seen but i think a lot of people in the real estate space didn't didn't necessarily come from that sort of background right they didn't have they had 
some other career path first and then kind of moved over uh, into real estate. So having had that experience with your parents and, you know, sort of being uh, immersed in their business dealings, whether you liked it or not, at an early age was uh, probably a little bit unique for for a lot of people. Um, what I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's easy in hindsight to say, Oh, what I, what I learned with, with my parents, what, you know, going to those job sites with dad, that, that helped me, that, that shaped me, but how do you feel, you know, sort of that specifically contributed to, you you said you grew up with, with poor dad, but do you, did you feel like the way that your parents were doing business was maybe different than how you do it now? What, like, what lessons do you, do you come away from that with? Well, you know, obviously uh, what is second nature to me is learned by most, right? I mean, I have, uh, I mean, I, I, part of the entrepreneur is just a funny word for problem solver, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the world throws everything in the book at you. And as an entrepreneur, you get to solve that problem or you go out of business or you lose money, you know? And I always watch my parents solve the problem right? Whether it was my mom came home and said, hey, the Johnsons want to sell their house and they want to, you know, they want to use the equity to start a business. And my dad talks about a, a, a warehouse he's got or a location that would work for them. You know, they were constantly doing that. And, you, you know, you're very correct in the fact that most people start the journey somewhere else. We know a lot of people that, you know, have a great job. They love their, they think they love their career until they get bit by the, you know, the real estate bug and the next thing they know, they're, you know, in some back alley trying to sell a kidney, trying to buy a duplex, right? Uh, and, and hopefully it's not quite that bad, right? But but the reality is most people try to tr make that transition. And a lot of the skill sets that come from corporate America don't transition well to entrepreneurial life. Because in, in corporate America, there's a protocol and you've got to get, you know, department head sign off and you've got to get this and you've got to get that. And on your entrepreneurial journey, you're the CEO, the CFO, the garbage collector. You're you're all of that in in most cases when we start. And so, you know, as my parents uh, built their business, you know, they did it brick by brick. You know, my dad is the son of a union mechanic. My mom, uh, you know, from a long line of chicken ranchers. You know, and I don't know if you know much about chicken ranchers, but there's uh, that's. Uh, uh, I tell you what, that's an interesting, uh, I, I I think yeah. cattle ranchers are more stable, right? But, yeah. but the reality is, you know, the, neither of them came from that real estate background. I am second generation on the builder developer, fourth generation on the realtor. Uh, but, but you have to start somewhere. And I was able to watch my parents. I didn't, I didn't get any money. I got a lot of life lessons. And if I had the opportunity to do it again, I'd take the life lessons over money for sure. Because it really has helped me come to the conclusion that if it is to be, it is, it is up to me. And understanding that, you know, everything that I'm faced with, I have to solve the problem. And there is a solution. There is a solution. Um, and so going through life that way, um, you know, has definitely helped. But anybody that's looking to make that start or make that transition or is already on that entrepreneurial real estate path and is wanting to scale their business or, or you know, add more units, you know, the reality is simple. The first problem you have to solve is how, right? How are you going to do this? Uh, and then, then you can look at the resources that you have 
You can make the decisions that need to be made to understand where you're going to go. But it's just, it's that first problem that you need to fix. And, And a lot of people, they love the comfort of corporate America because it's paying the mortgage, it's paying the bills, and then they can work nights and weekends. And that's true, but it's expensive. You know, they, 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 they have to do their real estate in their stolen moments in their nights and weekends. And, you know, when you look at what your options are, there are a lot of ways to do this. And that's the beauty of real estate because it can be anything you need it to be as active as you want it to be, or as passive as you want it to be. You know, you're starting slow, you're going fast, whatever that is, but you have to decide and you have to decide what you're going to do. And then you have to execute on that. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. And especially that, you know, sort of, you have to decide, you have to decide what, level of, you know, I think you hear a lot about people talk about real estate investing all the time. And it's like, you hear it out in the world and, and the, the, you know, that quote that everybody likes to put out there, the 90% of millionaires are made through real estate and all of this. And it's like those things, not necessarily untrue, but I think the general population thinks of real estate as one thing. And the reality is once you get into it, it, there's so many different ways you can run with it. You you mentioned active versus passive. Within passive, there's different options. Within active, there's a million different options. And so um, can you talk a little bit about what you do, sort of what your lane is uh, on the active side? Well, you know, I've used my my development background and the majority of what we do is we develop new projects. So we're heavy into multifamily development and we're heavy into industrial development. and you know we we actually go find the land, uh, we entitle the land, we build the structures, uh, we tenantize them. We are the original value add, right? When you talk about buying something that's dilapidated or it's undervalued in the rents and and those kinds of things, and you're going to make those improvements, we take the actual sticks and stones to create the buildings. And there's a there's a better margin in that uh, because we are taking the raw materials where somebody else is taking somebody's undervalued rents or somebody's, you know, 1973 version uh, and, and adding new lipstick to the pig and raising rents and, and improving the value. So we have found, and we do value add, um, you know, the office I'm in now is a value add. Um, we've got, you know, value add projects in Washington and in Houston. Uh, but most of what we do is the ground up development and, you know, the safety in that is that we are somewhere between four and nine million housing units short in America. You know, I just read an article this weekend that talked about, uh, actually, Ken McElroy was talking about it, a mentor of mine, uh, about the fact that interest rates, 75% of Americans are locked in on either paid for housing or low interest rates. And so they're not selling because they can't replace it. They can't get the same 2,200 square feet for $1,200 or $1,300 at their mortgages. And so they're staying put, which is continuing the shortage. We're seeing a constriction in the supply of houses for lease, for rent, for sale. Uh, and when we see that, it means new product has got to become available because there's not the turnover trade. So for us as developers, that's a very comforting thing. Uh, it means that rents are going to continue to stay strong uh, and demand is going to actually increase. And so um, that's kind of the lane that we like to operate in best and, uh, feel that we're pretty good at it. Yeah. And so you mentioned, 
you know, multifamily versus industrial. And and so maybe tell the listeners a little bit about, we do talk a lot about multifamily on here, but, I, but I'd like to kind of have you talk about sort of the, the development side, if you're, if you're doing ground up development of one versus the other and kind of what maybe some of the pros and cons of each. Yeah. Well, you know, development is, it's really seeing things as they should be, right? Uh, we've all driven past that field and go, gosh, you know what this part of town really needs, right? Uh, but, and and people think, well, you know, if you're a developer, you have to know everything and you really don't. It's really about creating a team. It's really about understanding what you're good at <clears throat> and finding the people that are better at the things that you're not. And so one of the first things that I do, if I <clears throat> were doing a project in, in Nashville, uh, just outside of Nashville. One of the first things I did was I went and talked to the property management companies around. And I said, what's needed, what's missing, and what's the rent, right? And so then they were able to tell me, hey, you know, that we've got these apartment complexes over here, but they don't have these kind of amenities. They don't have nine-foot ceilings. They don't have, you know, the parking is a little constrained. They've got these problems, right? So if you listen to somebody's problem, you create the solution. So now we're looking at doing a project that's a little bit overparked. Uh, you know, the people are looking at things that are affordable. Uh, they're not necessarily looking at needing all the amenities, you know, the swimming pool and the dog wash and the, you know, the gym that nobody uses and, you know, the pool table and all that kind of stuff, right? <clears throat> they're looking for a little bit more simplicity in their living. And so we're creating a project around that, right? And so now that I know what my rent is, and I know what my amenities need to be, then I can create my budget that's going to attract those people to my project, right? So I didn't come up with this all on my own. I didn't sit down with an architect and start drawing until we came up with something we liked. We went and listened to somebody else's problem and created that solution, right? Now that we know what that solution is, we're going to go through and implement that. And since I know what the price is, I know what I can get for rents, I know the cost that I have to build it for in order to make my margin work. Right. So I'm reverse engineering this thing. And it's not a fast moving train like the fact that, you know, somebody doing a value add apartment complex got a call on Friday afternoon and there's a call for offers on next Friday. Right. They've got seven days to put together the whole due diligence package and understand it. And they got to get up on a plane or go, you know, go do a property tour. Right. We have that time. Then we look at that and we say, OK, in this particular area that was just described, there's four options for locations. Right. Come up with the location check with the cities on zoning, pick the one that's going to be the easiest to rezone, negotiate with the owner about what that price looks like, when the entitlements are in place. All of this is a slow process that now 12 months later, 14 months later, uh, we're ready to begin that ground up construction, right? So we're able to find those kinds of things and put that into place. This whole time, we've been drawing a set of plans that works for our budget. So we're creating something that when it's time to, to build and deliver, we can do that. Then you're creating uh, that relationship with the banker on what you're going to do for your ground up. In other markets, we use uh, outside general contractors. So we're creating those relationships. All of this is taking place while we're going through that rezone process and getting that project ready to develop. So now all of a sudden, bang, you know, a year later, we now have everything in place and we pull the pin and we start the, the actual physical construction. 12 to 30 months later, depending on the size of the project, we now have units ready to deliver. Uh, as we've seen in the market, rents can fluctuate. Right now, rents are down 5 to 7%. But 
think about the fact that we did this timeline and this thought process 24, 36 months ago. Rents are up substantially, right? And so we we are we are building all these things out. And one of the things that we've always done is we've been very conservative in our underwriting because our window is so long between conception and delivery. Yeah. And so we're sitting here with the, with a really clear picture on what's coming and what we're going to do and how we're going to get there. And you know what? We've got a project that's going to lease up right now, and we're four hundred dollars uh, higher on our rents, even with the sag in the market on pricing over what we had in our pro forma, right? So, so this is the market factors that have helped me. But if my if my rents came in at pro forma, I would be fantastically thrilled. But they're actually coming in over the pro forma, and so I'm obviously jumping for joy, right? So that's that's kind of the process of how you work that through the development issues and get to the start line to then build it to get to the finish line, uh, and then you have then you have that whole process taking place. And simultaneously, you know, we've got one that's getting ready to to break ground in Nashville. We've got two others on the table. We've got another couple of markets we're looking at. So we're we have something happening all the time. We've got one that's just going to lease up. We've got another one that's coming on for lease up in uh, December. So you just, you know, your pipeline begins to fill and you're constantly in process on some of that in some other area doing another project. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I mean, that you don't have to be able to do everything. I'm sure you have uh, a large and, you know, proficient team helping you, you know, sort of with each component of that. And you mentioned even, you know, sort of subcontractors in the different markets. So it is really about that sort of relationship growing and getting all of that, you know, kind of in place. It, a lot of people point to uh, point to development, ground up development as a, maybe a more risky play. And I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I, 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 you know, based on kind of what you just said, the, the risk as the developer, the risk is in a lot of ways built into it. And I think most of what people, most of what people think about that is really probably based on 2008 re really is where, yeah. you know, that that's where all that comes from. And, and otherwise the returns on, on ground up development can be, uh, as you mentioned, you know, higher than a value add play and, and things like that. So what would you say to that, you know, sort of those risk? Well, questions? you know, first of all, let's, let's talk about 2008, right? If you go back and look, in 2008, we had a really, uh, there was a strong equilibrium in the market, right? There was a lot of buyers. There was a lot of sellers. There was a lot of product, right? 9, 10, 11, 12, we weren't building much nationwide, right? So we've created a shortage that will take us at least, at least another four or five years to deliver on, right? When you're looking at that, that's kind of where the comparison really becomes obvious because we're not in an equilibrium market. We have a tremendous shortage in the market. Now you take that and you say, okay, let's talk about the risks with development. <clears throat> there are risks involved in development. There's risks involved in value add, right? Sure. You you said you could do this and that to the unit and raise the price $200 and you did this and that and the market has done what it's done and you're getting $75. There's a lot of risk in that. But what we do as developers, I think, you know, banks are used to de-risking situations. That's what they do. And so the first thing you do in this situation is you're getting an outside appraisal on what is in the area, what is coming, what's necessary. 
And so you're taking in a third party's opinion and they're looking at it in today's rents. Everything that you do as a developer, nothing is projected. There's no rent escalations that you can build into your, your clause or your contracts or anything like that. You're dealing in today's dollars. So you've got 24 months worth of window uh, in on a good day uh, to figure out what the market's going to do. And if the market's only going to give you 3%, well, that's 6% on $1,000 rents. That's 60 bucks, right? That's a, that's a decent chunk that you could likely get in the markets that we've had over the last 10 years. Those have been double digit chunks on an annual basis. But then you're taking that in the bank and saying, okay, Shannon, we're going to give you 70% loan to cost, not loan to value, right? So we're completing a project now, uh, starting lease up on it. Uh, our over our total costs for phase one and phase two are going to be right about 67, 68 million, right? When we look at that, I have a value on that of about 81 from two years ago. Do you think my costs, my values, uh, sorry, from three years ago, you think my values are going to be up from three years ago? Yeah, yeah, probably. My rents are, right? So when I look at that and I say, okay, here's what I have. I've de-risked the situation because I have third-party opinion. I've also de-risked the situation because I'm dealing with the rents of the time. I'm de-risking the situation because when I begin to draw my plans, I do a design build. So I involve my plumbers, my electricians, my framers, my foundation guys, so that we're developing those set of plans on a budget. So we don't wind up in a situation that a lot of people wind up in. And this is where it gets scary is you play the change order game. You start out with a $20 million budget. Somehow it goes to $25 million and you're short about $4 million because you didn't carry $5 million in your contingency. Nobody carries 20% in your contingency. But if you're developing the plans and you're involving the subcontractors as you go along, it's really hard, Jason. If I come to you and I say, hey, listen, I need you. You're the plumber. You're going to do this job. You're going to be, you know, $4,200 a door for this project. You go, yeah, no problem. I'll design it. I'll make it work. You know, you've got the work. We're going to do this thing. We get to the end of it and you go, oh, by the way, we forgot this. And by the way, the plans don't show that. And by the way, by the way, by the way, now I've got 20% change orders. But when you're using that design build mentality where you, Jason, as the plumber are involving the mechanical engineer that you really like, it's really hard for you to come back to me and say, I forgot to draw this for you, so I have to charge you, right? So you're de-risking the situation even in the, in, in the assemblage of your planning team and how you're going to build this thing out. Now we're executing. Now we still have the risk that we, we felt it in COVID with where lumber prices went. Lumber prices shot up, you've got labor shortages, you've got material shortages, all of those things factor into it. But again, because it's development, you've got long windows. So you're able to procure stuff as you're coming along. We've gotten now one of the first questions we ask our general contractors is, do you have a procurement specialist? If you do, that's fantastic. We want to make sure that they're on board to keep that window out in front of us. We know that windows, for example, uh, we were having a 12-week lead time from a two-week lead time. Okay, where are we at in the cycle? Uh, shower tubs were, you know, seven months out. Electrical switch gear is 14 months out. All of those things, but you're you're not trying to get in there. It's not like you just found out about the project yesterday. Uh, you got the winning offer. You made it through the, uh, the best and final. You're going to close in 30 days. You've got a 
you know, you've got a turn team coming in in 90. So 90 days from now, you've got to do all this stuff and you've got to go find all the everything. We're, we're a little bit deleveraged de from that risky position because of our timeline. And then the 25 years of experience. This is the one final thing that, that banks uh, really look at is how long have you been doing this? What's your track record? What projects have you been involved? What hurdles have you overcome? So our resume speaks to that and says, this is the team that we have that's going to ensure that, that's going to make sure that we're getting all of this stuff done and getting it done correctly. So like anything, a new venture can be unusual. It can be scary. It can be all of those things. But with the right team and the right players and the right plan, all of this stuff comes together and timing, timing is, is definitely difficult in today's world, but we're able to manage that very well and execute on that because we put together the plan and we know what start looks like and we know where the finish line is. Yeah. I mean, those are all really great points. And I think that the experience thing, obviously, I think is a, a, a huge piece. And I think probably maybe exponentially more important in that development type of uh, process, just because you have, there's, there's not, there's nothing existing. It's not, you know, it's not as uh, similar as it might be to people with say single family residential experience, moving on to a value add where it's, you know, essentially a bunch of little houses already put together. You really, there's so many steps to development. What do you think from, um, as far as d industrial development, do you feel like same process? Is is there uh, maybe a shorter timeline, longer timeline? How how does that compare? Industrial is definitely a shorter timeline, and it's a much easier one to deal with because you're looking at something much simpler. You're looking at a place where people want to, uh, you know, when people think of industrial, <clears throat> the first thing that comes to their mind is a rusty old metal building with junk piled all around it down by the railroad tracks, right? That's not where industrial is at uh, today. We think of the Amazon million square foot buildings. That's also not the industrial world we live in. What we like to do is we like to do the uh, the multi-tenant industrial buildings that are 20 to 40,000 square feet. The tenant users are two to 10,000 square feet. They're cabinet shops, they're window tinters. Uh, I even have a guy that makes gelato ice cream, has been in one of my buildings since uh, 2001, making ice cream, right? Where else are you going to put an 18 by 22 walk-in freezer, right? This guy's this guy's my tenant for life. So the reality is, is when you look at those kinds of spaces, you're looking at traffic patterns, freeway access. Um, where's the growing part of town? Where are these goods and services going to be accessible to others? And where is this location going to allow them transit in throughout the community that they're working in? And so at the end of the day, Process is usually much shorter because industrial zones tend to have most of the guidelines in place that you can go in, purchase a piece of property, uh, and begin development almost right away um, or construction because you're not – industrial areas don't usually um, blend in with single-family homes, multi-family. Multi you know, it's, it's more segregated in that regard. And so it's much easier. And your tenant is all looking for about the same thing. It's not like your multifamily tenant. You got somebody who wants a one bedroom. You got somebody who wants a swimming pool. Somebody's looking at, you know, the schools. They want to make sure that their 
you know, they're close to their work or they're close to the daycare that the kids go to. There's all these different factors in consideration, whereas in, in industrial, you're dealing with business people. Uh, they're looking for a location to do their business that is economical for them. They're looking for a clean and safe environment. They're usually looking for minimal amount of office, a couple of bathrooms and and space to do what they do. We've got tech companies in there in warehouse space. We've got uh, we've got AstroTurf manufacturers. We've got CNC machine guys. They're all looking for the same thing, four walls and a roof that doesn't leak with accessibility for their customers, their shipments, all those kinds of things. So that's much easier. The other thing that's amazing that I think is very, very underrated on industrial is that they're triple net leases. So once you've built the project and you've filled the project, you know, we're hearing right now, there's a lot of, a lot of people are feeling a lot of pain because their insurance shot up 30 to 50% over the last 12 months. You know, that's not something that we've anticipated throughout history. We also just got done with the COVID lockdowns. They didn't lock down industrial. So industrial tenants kept paying their rent, right? But that triple net lease allows the landlord to absorb those costs for the increased property taxes, for the increase in insurance, and pass that along to the tenant. And the tenant, because they're doing business, understands that the cost of goods and services fluctuates. They're more able to absorb that in where John and Sally Homemaker, they don't have the ability to absorb a $200 rent increase, so they have to move down the street. So we look at those kind of things that that industrial is, and then to top all that off, you've got three to five-year leases with built-in escalation clauses, and you have uh, a tenant that is establishing a business and putting down roots in a community. So when you get all done, you ice that cake with higher cap rates, so more cash flow day one on industrial. Industrial for me is kind of the sleeping giant of where you can be in a stabilized cash flow world. Because you're not having the turnover, you're not dealing with all of the issues, uh, you're not dealing with the, you know, just what people expect inside <clears throat> inside the unit itself. So we're able to produce that product usually from start to finish in less than a year, tenantize that, turn that into a cash flowing asset, start collecting rent checks, start paying the mortgage, uh, getting long-term debt and finance. So our window is much shorter. Our accuracy on projections is much better, uh, but we're also still in a, a bit of a constrained market uh, in the right markets. Yeah, great, great points. I the I guess my in the in the past until you know this I guess this last year I had always sort of been under the understanding and um, maybe I'm incorrect, but uh, that leverage was much lower on like an industrial. Uh, debt than it would be on multifamily, but now multifamily leverage has gone down quite a bit. Uh, and so I'm assuming they're probably not that far off if, if at all, in terms of, you know, sort of the leverage on those assets that you can, uh, that you can get from a bank. Is that something that you're seeing? What, how does, how does well, leverage but let's look also, industrial? Let's, let's look at both sides of that coin, Jason. I mean, leverage is what gets people in trouble also. Right. 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 So there's, maybe there's a higher safety margin here. Um, there's, I know for a fact that people that invest in industrial have a more realistic set of expectations as far as what returns should be on their, on their investment. Uh, we've got, we got kind of, and I, and I love, 
it, it's I don't love it. Uh, it's aggravating for me, having been an industry veteran for over 25 years, to hear people go, well, the new norm. No, we are returning to the place of my birth. This is, you know, I mean, I bought my first house at 8.75% at interest, right? Right. We're used to this. Those of us that have been in the in the business a decade are used to these kind of interest rates. We're yeah. used to this kind of leverage. We went through this uh, cotton candy, uh, cocaine infused lending practice that allowed anybody to get 80% leverage on an apartment complex. But as a lot of those people are finding out right now, they don't have what it takes when it comes to the refinance. They're doing cash in refinances and you don't even need to to look at Wikipedia or watch YouTube to realize that a cash in refinance is not what you want to do. No, so, no. so, so what you have is you have people that got used to the, the ability to come in with 80% down, have the value add portion financed by the bank, all of these kinds of things. And that worked in that environment, but that floating rate debt is now blowing up. And you're now having to try and do something. So in a lot of cases, I'm seeing that people are forced to sell the asset because they're unable to refinance it because they've got to bring more money to the deal. And all of a sudden that doesn't work for them. Yeah. So when I look at it and say, yes, you're going to get, I just closed the deal uh, three weeks ago. Uh, we, we, we signed and it recorded on the, well, the 10th. So two weeks ago uh, today. Uh, and I got uh, five and a quarter on 10 year fixed uh, life insurance money. So for 10 years, I'm fixed at, at five and a quarter um, with 60, I think I wound up with about 68% leverage on based on my DSCR, right? But here's the thing. I know that I have 5% uh, rent escalators built into my, my industrial, right? So I know I can do the projections and I know when I'm going to have enough to refinance. I know what my DSCR is going to be if rates stay the same. If rates continue to climb, okay, but I've also got a 10-year window. So, you know, 68%, it means I got 32% silent partner. You know, that's still a pretty good deal. I've never seen up until the last couple of years, I've never seen 80% loan to value. I've never seen the kind of uh, opportunities that people have had to get the kind of financing they did. And they still looked at it and said, well, I'm taking the floating rate debt because it's a half a point lower, you know? Uh, yeah. So, so you can look at it both ways. You can say that things are changing or you can say that they're returning to normal. Yeah, no, that is, that is probably more accurate. My, my first house, I think we were like just under 10% uh, on, yeah. on the loan. See, so right? it, it's, it's yeah, the, the being six or seven or you know wherever uh, you might be at, at a for a single family and and probably even a little bit below that if you've got long term debt and in commercial it's it's not what what we were in was crazy what we have now is probably probably more like the norm and right and that yeah the leverage question I think is uh, proving maybe that that safety you know that um, where you might have talked about these things as as you know development or or anything else being risky but in reality the lower leverages was keeping those potentially uh as as the safer asset classes um 
Well, Shannon, let me, let me switch gears here. I, I, I love to keep talking about this stuff, but I want to keep you all day. Um, I, I want to get to the part where I ask you the questions I ask every guest. Um, first one is related to the name of the show being Know Your Why. So so what is your why? What what kind of keeps you driving towards bigger and bigger levels of success? You know, um, there, I, I really kind of have two. I, I believe that 2008 was caused by uh, the lack of education in the marketplace. And one of the reasons that I love being on podcasts like this and I and I I love involving the passive investors that I do is because my goal is not that we just become business partners, but but we become uh, educators of our investors and we help them understand that they can achieve the financial freedom, right? The financial freedom is everybody's why. I want to be able to do what I want when I want. Um, and for me, I think I want to die with an LOI in my pocket, right? I want one, I want to be reaching for one more deal when that big heart attack takes me away. Right. But that's really my why I want to help people achieve that, whether they want to be active in the business, whether they want to be passive in the business, but they, they, they have the ability to create their financial freedom. They have the ability to walk away from everything in front of them that is requiring their time to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, education and sort of helping the community, it, it, it seems to be, when I interview people that have been in the business for a long time, it does definitely seem to be like, that's where most people end up. It's like, let me, let me get to that impact level. I've, I've taken care yeah. of myself. I've taken care of my family. Now what's, what's next after that. So um, very cool. Uh, tell us something about yourself that isn't common knowledge, special skill, hobby, just something to let listeners know you a little better. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm a third generation pilot. Uh, my son is a fourth generation. We do things generationally. But I've actually figured out how uh, to take something I love as a hobby and turn it into a massive tax savings. So we actually, I started a flight school. And if you look at the IRS tax code, depreciation of equipment in the leasing environment is something that someone can use against their active income, create passive income, and depreciation against their active income. So We've actually turned this from, I like to go flying. Uh, we've got a fleet of aircraft. We've got a bunch of instructors. We're helping uh, fill that pilot shortage as we speak, right? But at the same time, I've used the things that I love to make sure the Uncle Sam and I are square on what I don't know. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's that's fantastic on many levels. <laughs> really uh <laughs> Very cool to to have that. I, I someday someday I'm gonna someday I'm gonna fly a plane. So I just, even if it's just for like a brief minute, someday I want to fly a plane. But uh, I well, just it, come on over, man. I got a couple of them. I'll yeah, get you okay. right in. I know <laughs> a guy. Awesome. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, when people hear this and they want to reach out to you, what's what's the best way? You know, easiest way to get a hold of me is just shannonrobnet.com. Uh, I have to keep it simple. I'm a contractor. I need to be able to remember that. But shannonrobnet.com, you can get to uh, my podcast on there. You can get to my schedule on there. I'd love to set up a call and chat with you. You can get to some of our past projects. You can see everything we are. All of our social handles are on there at just shannonrobnet.com. Great. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, last question for you, Shannon. What what piece of advice would you give to someone who wants to get started in real estate? They they hear this, they, they see uh, the success that you've achieved. What would you tell them to kind of get them going? Well, you know, look, my success is definitely um, 
has a lot to do with hard work, but, but the thing that I would tell anyone to do, and, and this is easier to do than you think it's become important to important people. And the reality is if you're looking at starting your real estate journey and you don't know where to go, but you can look out here and here and here, and you can see people that are successful. And if you come to them and say, Hey, teach me everything, you know, I want to learn. We don't necessarily have time for that, but and I have a gentleman that, that he, he's just entering his full first full week of work, but he came to me and he says, there's got to be something I can do to help you. This is my resume. This is my skill set. And he had nothing in the real estate field, nothing. But I saw some things in there that he could be helpful with. And I said, yeah, you know, if you want to help me find this or help do that or help do this, he took that ball and he ran with it. And he started to see where he could take and transition his previous skill set into real estate became important to me because I knew I could reach out and I could call him and I could get something done. And then we began to work together. And out of that, he's been able to increase his real estate journey. He's starting his own business now, all of those kinds of things. So if you are undecided on how to get started, find somebody that's doing what you're doing and become important to them, become valuable to them. Don't become somebody that comes in and says, teach me what you know, because I want to be you, but I don't want to pay you or I don't want to add value to your life. Be important to important people and watch what that does to change your trajectory. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. It's great advice. Um, well, I just want to say thank you, Shannon. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, appreciate everything that you shared with the, the listeners today. I think, I think it's been great. It's going to add a lot of value. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate what you're doing to add value to the real estate community as well. It's definitely important and uh, it lines up with what we what we like to do over here. Awesome. Thank you. And folks listening, uh, I know you're going to get a lot of value from this episode. Please like, rate, and review allows us to get more great guests like Shannon. Um, thank you all for listening. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.